So, Kurt, very nice for you to be talking with us. Thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, we love your work at Hammerly Ceramics on Instagram. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, that's it. Hammerly Ceramics, hammerlyceramics.com. You basically just look that up and you'll find me. Got to make sure to get the plugs in. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so why don't you tell us a bit about your background? Uh, how about we go from there? So I um, went to college at CU Boulder for architecture and um, got a job working for the school that I went to right after I got out. It was 2009 and graduating from architecture school didn't lead to a lot of jobs at the time. Uh, it was a bad, bad time for architecture. But luckily, I had been a student employee the whole time that I was in school. And the office that I was a student employee in was the print shop slash fabrication lab for the architecture school. I applied to be the manager of that office after I graduated when my boss at the time decided he was going to go to graduate school. Um, and I worked that job for uh, a year and a half. And then I was riding my bike to work one day and I got hit by a car going 30 as I was riding my bike through a crosswalk and I broke my neck C2 clear through. I broke seven ribs. I ruptured my spleen, kidney and liver and I had a collapsed lung. So I spent two weeks in the hospital and I spent three weeks in a traction halo um, and just had to spend all that time recovering. After I recovered from the accident, I was looking for ways to get off the couch, get out of the house, stop taking oxycodone. And uh, I had taken a pottery class in high school and really kind of enjoyed it uh, at the time. So I decided to sign up for a class that was close to my house. I took one and then I took another and another and another and um, then became an apprentice and a member at that same guild I took classes at and built the Instagram and eventually um, switched to part-time at work and then cut out that job completely and now I do ceramics full-time. Congratulations. So, that, uh, so, so thank you. Uh, I was uh, the oldest of three. Mm -hmm. I have a younger brother and a younger sister um, and uh, my parents are both public school teachers uh, which was very irritating as a child because they knew every single teacher I ever had. <laughs> and due to a lot of that, I was quite the rebellious child and then took that to an even further level um, once I was a teenager. I was not a, super, not a super happy kid, not a super happy teenager. My parents fought all the time. They didn't end up getting divorced until I was uh, in college. Um, but, uh, they pretty much spent my entire life, um, fighting. And then in college, I, uh, started off pretty rocky. I didn't get good grades. Um, but, I, after sophomore year and I failed a bunch of classes I had a conversation with my grandma and she basically turned it around, said that all what you need to do is just get your degree. Even if you're not completely happy with what it's in getting that piece of paper is really important. And that one uh, instance, that one event, really kind of changed my mind about everything. And I buckled down, I got A's and B's for the rest of my college career, and I graduated. 
and like I said, started working for the same school I went to, um, just for a little background for you guys. Um, and then, so let's fast forward to the accident. So like I said, I got hit by a car. Um, my rib cage explode. Everyone, the first question everyone are, are always asks is, did, did the driver of the car stop? And yes, he did. He stopped because my rib cage exploded his windshield and he could not keep driving. Oh, man. Um, and then Jeez. once my rib cage was hit by the windshield, um, all of my ribs that broke, two of them broke in two places, which mm. makes you what's called flail chest. So when you go to inhale, those ribs pull oh. in oh. and they crack and it's terrible. So, um, I got hit by the car. I flew 30 feet through the air, uh, hit the ground, uh, blacked out while I was in the air. But as soon as I hit the ground, I came to, I stood up, uh, I walked to the side of the road and this guy just comes booking it out of the coffee shop that was right next door. He runs up to me and he's like, you need to lay on the ground right now. So, uh, he, and the first thing I said to him was, um, I think I can feel my ribs moving inside of my chest. And he reiterated, you need to lay on the ground right now. Yeah. So he helped me out of my backpack and laid me out on, laid me down on the ground, um, waiting for the ambulance to come. Uh, apparently, and I was not conscious for this, but there was a, uh, a woman that showed up, a middle-aged woman, and she was trying to get me to stand up and pray with her. And, uh, this guy who ran out of the coffee shop was a paramedic um, on the side, and he said that he was about to punch this woman in the face because he was like, this kid probably has a broken neck, and you cannot pick him up and pray with him. So luckily, this guy was around to help me out. Um, yeah. And uh, so I blacked out again pretty soon after I laid down on the ground. Uh, kind of came to for a couple seconds in the ambulance, uh, just saw people standing over me and then, uh, pretty much lost an entire day in the hospital. Uh, for the longest time I was under the impression that they put the halo on me on the first day and that I didn't lose a whole day. I thought I lost like three hours. Um, but it turns out after talking to my mom and my roommate that they didn't put the halo on me until the second day and I was completely blacked out for almost 24 hours. I wasn't unconscious, but I don't remember any of what happened. So they took me to the hospital, they put me through scans and did all kinds of uh, um, uh, just basically to look inside and outside and figure out exactly what was wrong, determine my neck was broken, my ribs were broken, determine my spleen kidney and liver were split, but they weren't going to have to open me up and remove them or anything like that. Uh, they went in, uh, with an angiogram through my femoral artery with a little roto-rooter snake thing. And they mm. put a couple of titanium screws in my kidney and my spleen to kind of pull them back together from where my ribs had hit them and exploded them. Interesting. Um, and then they used some kind of like cauterizing, I don't know if it was a laser or I don't know what it was, but uh, they like fused the blood vessels so that I wasn't bleeding internally anymore. Oh. And then the next day they went to put the halo on me, which is uh, four titanium pins that actually screw into your skull and they hold your head up. Uh, and then they put this body brace on you and that connects to 
the actual halo that goes up top, and that stops you from being able to move your shoulders, move your neck, move your head. It basically just immobilizes the entire joint of your neck. Uh, and that's when I woke up on the second day, is when the, there were three people standing over me, um, screwing these pins into my skull. And it was the funniest thing. My roommate has reminded me of this many times, but I uh, was on a lot of morphine and um, was just hitting on this woman that was putting the halo on me. Um, uh, I found out later that she was not into men, which was fine with me because I had come down from the drugs. But it was funny <laughs> at the time because I was just like, I could hear the creaking of my own skull, but I didn't realize what was happening. And I just kept telling this woman how beautiful she was. And uh, my roommate got quite a kick out of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's when on that second day and they put the halo on me and the, the drugs kind of got reeled in is when I started recognizing the reality of the situation that I was in. Um, recognizing that uh, I was lucky to be alive. Uh, there were nurses coming in every hour of the day and night to prick my feet and my fingertips to make sure that I wasn't losing sensation and that I wasn't paralyzed or anything like that. Um, uh, and just uh, realizing that I'm going to be in the hospital for a while. And when something like this happens to you, it's pretty intense because no one, they can't tell you how long you're going to be in the hospital. They can't tell you how long you're going to be in this halo other than kind of a loose estimate of three to six months is what they told me. And it's really, it's this situation where you're searching desperately for some, some kind of, some kind of finality to grasp onto. Like, is, is this something, am I going to have to be in the hospital for a month? Am I going to have to be in the hospital for three days? Like those are very different things to try to wrap your head around and no one can really give you answers at this point. And it's just a slew of different nurses um, because they they try not to give you the same nurse for multiple shifts because they don't want you getting attached to the nurses and they don't want the nurses getting attached to you. So it's this very intense situation where uh, all you're supposed to be doing is resting and healing, but it is one, super boring, and two, it's really hard to deal with, especially in the ICU when you have, you're in this room that has no windows because they don't want you to know what time it is, day or night. They just want you to sleep as much as humanly possible and just recover and stay as calm as possible. But the whole time, I mean, by day three or four of being in this room uh, in the dark, basically, because there's no windows and I'm in the ICU. So there's people in other rooms screaming constantly at all hours of the night. They bring someone in that just had a horrible accident or something in there screaming and yelling and nurses are running around like crazy and they try to keep it as calm as possible in your room, but you can hear everything that's going on outside. Right. And by like the fourth and fifth day, it started just getting really, really intense I had no idea when I was going to get out of the hospital. I had no idea when I was going to see sunlight again. Um, by the fifth or sixth day, it was really nice. They put me in a wheelchair and they wheeled me outside for 20 minutes or something like that. And that helped. But um, by that time, the reality of the situation had set in fully. And um, it was getting getting rather intense. Um at that point when you're feeling so trapped, that almost sounds like a type of prison. How, how do you feel internally knowing that not only are you 
is that your current reality, but that same reality is going to be three months, six months, possibly? Um, I mean, I, I was very fortunate to have mom, dad, grandma, my sister even flew up out from Idaho and spent a couple days with me. The first couple days, I actually had friends and family that stayed the whole night sometimes, mm-hmm. even though I was in and out of consciousness, um, just so I wouldn't be completely alone when I woke up. So I was in just about the best situation you could possibly be in. And despite all that, it was still unbelievably hard to wake up in the hospital. Um, I had a, a morphine button that I could hit every 15 minutes, and that was great. Um because it kind of it, it made it not so painful, but if you fell asleep for four hours and they hadn't woken you up to give you your oxy and you hadn't hit that morphine button in three hours, you suddenly wake up kind of out of it, unaware of the situation. It all kind of comes back at you all at once, and you're also in a ton of pain because you haven't hit that button in a while. So every time you wake up, it was just a very, very intense situation. Um, but having having those friends and family there, it helped as much as it could. But at the end of the day, you're right. It's still it's this kind of prison where I couldn't leave that room. I couldn't get up and walk around. I could not do the things. I could not basically do anything. I had I was restricted to that room, and I was for all intents and purposes restricted to that bed for days and days on end, just trying to figure out anything to distract me from the fact that this is happening. Um, and then, uh, it was, this whole situation was so intense and, um, I thought that the worst of it was over after the first couple days. And then they moved me to the, the second floor of the hospital. They moved me out of the ICU. They put me into more of a stable area where it's much more calm. And I, at that point kind of, they're like, Oh, you're stable. You're good. We can kind of, uh, not pay as much attention to you and you can just keep resting and we'll keep a little bit of an eye on you. So they moved me to the second floor and they let me walk up there, which turns out they shouldn't have done that because, uh, as I told you guys, um, last time when we talked, uh, I don't think I mentioned this, but the reason that my kidney sutures tore and caused me all these problems was because I walked the like 200 feet to the other room through the hospital. Mm. And I really, I remember being very adamant about doing that. And I wanted, I was like, I have been in a bed for five or six days. I need to just walk a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they let me. So we go up to the second floor. They take the catheter out of me, which was, um, already just one of the most horrible experiences as a man to have his catheter in for days and days and days. So they take it out and, um, in this room, think everything's great. And I go to pee for the, the very first time, um, since I've been in the hospital and had this catheter in the whole time and I'm in the halo, so I can't see anything. So I'm just hoping that I'm aiming for the toilet and everything's fine. (laughs) And I start peeing and all I can see is bright red, glow all over the walls so i have to stop peeing and back up and bend over at the waist because i'm in this hate and realize that i am just peeing straight blood and so upon realizing this i kind of freak out because i've watched a bunch of medical shows before and i thought my kidneys were failing and i was going to die and all of this horrible stuff 
call the nurse in. It's this like super old 60 year old woman. She couldn't be more calm about the situation, but she's like, okay, well, um, because this is happening, um, we are going to have to put a catheter back in you. And at this point i just sank and was just like, Oh my God, this is such a nightmare. Little did I know that the nightmare had just began begun. Um, so I lay back down, I put the catheter back in me and nothing comes out. And she's like, well, that's not good. Um, it looks like it's clogged. We're going to have to clear it. And I already at this point have to pee um, or just have this urge that I have to pee. So the first step to clear the catheter is she takes this big syringe full of water or saline and injects it back up through the catheter to try to clear it out. And this one puts more fluid into my bladder that's already full. And two, it doesn't work and nothing comes out. So this 60 year old woman is like, well, we have to put a bigger catheter in because obviously there's something that's clogging it up. So they take that catheter out. The second one I've had removed that day and she puts a third one in a bigger one (laughs) and nothing comes out. Nothing happens. At this point, she starts to freak out and she's like, we have to call the urologist, um, but he's not even in the city right now. So waiting for the urologist, waiting to figure out what the hell is wrong, what the hell is going to happen, laying there for almost two and a half hours before the urologist finally gets to the hospital. And this whole time, I'm, my bladder is filling more and more because I drank a bunch of water. The urologist gets there, goes, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's clogged. Um, but she put the wrong one in, so we have to put a, a different one in. So then he removes that catheter for the third time that day, and he puts a third one back in. And they bring in an ultrasound machine, and he scans my bladder with the ultrasound, and he says, well, you have a blood clot the size of a softball in your bladder because you've been bleeding into your bladder all morning. Mm -hmm. And it was probably, most likely, it was because I ruptured my sutures in my kidney walking through the hospital. Just walking, the most casual walk ever, but it tore and I started bleeding into my bladder. So then, I've already been laying in bed screaming for hours. Mind you that I I still have seven broken ribs, so every time I take a deep (laughs) breath, it's excruciating. I have a broken neck and I have four titanium screws in my head, so every time I move, it's excruciating. And now I have over a liter of fluid in my bladder and the doctor proceeds to tell me how he needs to get this blood clot out. I was expecting surgery or God knows what, and I probably would have preferred surgery. But what this man does is he puts one hand on my belly, grabs the catheter with the other hand, and proceeds to whisk this softball-sized blood clot like it eggs in a bowl <laughs> inside of my body so he can then forcibly make a syringe kind of thing, suck all of the blood clot oh. and the fluid out of my bladder. And it was by far the <sighs> lowest moment of my entire life, way worse than breaking my neck, oh. getting the halo in. I'm sitting there screaming my head off. My mom is screaming, why don't you give him any morphine? The nurse is screaming back. They've already given him too much. Like we're already in the illegal category of how much (laughs) we've given him. Um, And then after this whole ordeal is over, they have to wheel me down to not an OR, but they have to go back up through my femoral artery and they have to re-suture my kidney 
because it's still bleeding at this point. And then uh, I finally get to rest and just turn all the lights off and just lay on my back in the halo with broken ribs and just completely fucking wrecked and just finally get to relax after that whole ordeal. And luckily, that was the lowest point in my remaining six or so days in the hospital or seven days were uh, all increasing in uh, how good they were. And I got to go outside a little bit more and I got to eat more normal food. Um, And I think it was two days later I actually got that catheter out for the last time. Um, But yeah, that uh, that was some shit to have to deal with yeah absolutely it's, uh, pretty pretty intense if someone told you that you would have six tubes stuck in your urethra for taking 200 <laughs> feet of steps would you take that back i probably would yeah and, and i remember the nurse being like i don't know if we should let you you should probably sit in the wheelchair and i was like can i please just walk like i i had already seen my leg so the crazy thing about your bot one when you have a catastrophic accident like this, I didn't mm-hmm. eat for three days because Ooh. my insides were completely annihilated. Right. So I didn't eat for three days. I didn't walk for, I think, four. And I, I assume how it kind of works is that your body is needing resources to heal. Mm-hmm. So it kind of like pulls from wherever it can. So I remember at one point after like the third or fourth day pulling the blanket back and my legs being half the size that they normal, normally were. And it happened so quickly and I was so absolutely mortified of what was happening that I, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, after three days of not eating anything and not walking and it just, uh, yes, to answer your question, I would take it back. <laughs> I, I would go back in time and tell past Kurt to listen to the fucking doctor. <laughs> So from then on, how is sleeping in the halo? Like, what are you ever able to get a full night's rest? Or so in the hospital, it was a different story. When I had that morphine button, I realized pretty quickly because I I I love brain chemistry stuff. It's so interesting mm-hmm. to see how these chemicals can interact with your brain. I realized that hit the button once, and I could feel it pretty instantly. 15 minutes later, I'd hit it a second time. And then 15 minutes after that, I'd hit it a third time and I would fall asleep instantaneously. Like that was the level of morphine that would just knock me out completely. (laughs) And it was kind of a hilarious thing because I remember there was one moment when my mom came to visit and she really had some stuff to talk to me about, about my job or something like that. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm on the third button. You have six seconds. <laughs> She's like, no, just wait, just wait, just wait. And after that six seconds was over, I pushed that button and I was out for three hours. Um, so in the hospital, I didn't really realize how much of a nightmare it was until I got home and I wasn't in a hospital bed, and I realized I cannot lay on my side, I cannot mm. lay on my back, because if I lay on any of those sides, the two pins on that side would push into my skull, mm. and it would be excruciating. So um, I had to learn to sleep sitting up, and it really, yeah, there was never a full night's sleep. There was a lot of naps, and a lot of just kind of like falling asleep on the couch once I was just too exhausted. But um, in this halo, I could not sleep laying down, and I could not shower for three months. 
and it was it was quite the medieval torture device. Um, and I think the lowest point of that, the lowest point for me mentally, so in the hospital with the catheters and the blood clot in my bladder, that was like the lowest point, um, the lowest instance of my life. Like the, I don't explain this. So it was like, it was this short term thing because it was just a couple hours. But once I got mm -hmm. out of the hospital, there was just this kind of creeping depression and anxiety of after a while of being in this situation and not being and being sleep deprived and all of these things, my brain was just telling me like, you're going to, it's going to be like this forever. Mm. Even though I knew that they, I mean, they told me that it was going to be three to six months in the halo and I'd get out of it. Uh, like I said, um, when you're on opioids and you haven't slept in a while, your brain can tell you some fucked up things. And mine just like to tell me that, uh, you're never going to get out of the situation. You better just deal with it. So that built, over time for days and weeks and probably about six weeks into being in the halo uh i remember standing in my bathroom in front of the mirror with a wrench in my hand crying my eyes out and calling my mom on the phone and telling her that i was going to take the halo off and like I, I can't deal with this anymore this is too much it's just not this is this is just torturous and my mom is very awesome and very calmly was like well you can take it off but then they're gonna have an ambulance come out here pick you up and they're gonna take you to the hospital and they're gonna put four more of those pins in different spots mm. and um that was enough to kind of talk me down and be like well fuck you're right mom <laughs> all right i will just go sit on my ass some more because that was that was the reality is um uh, I was in this situation. There was very little I could do to distract myself. One of the craziest things is, is I love playing video games, but when I was in the Halo, I barely played any at all. I don't know if it was because I couldn't play them as well as I normally did because I was on drugs or if I just I, – I move a lot more than I think when I play games mm -hmm. and, play, and I couldn't move, so it just made it not as – I don't know. I don't know what it was, but I remember very distinctly that for those three months, I basically didn't play any video games, even though it would have been a great distraction. I don't know what it was. It just I, I had my laptop in the hospital and tried, and it just wasn't. Uh, I wasn't enjoying it. Did you find anything that helped to kill some time? No, I. No. It was uh, the only thing that I found was I went back to work very quickly. I was in the hospital for two weeks. I was at my mom's house for one week, and then I told her, I mean, she was great. My stepdad, they were both great. They set up a bed for me in their living room so I didn't have to go up the stairs, um, and it was all set up, so I had a bed that I was laying in all the time or sitting in all the time, um, had TV, and um, they would get me food and stuff, which also drove me crazy because I love to cook. So even like I remember eating the scrambled eggs that my mom made and just being like, God damn it, these are not good. <laughs> disappointed because <laughs> I, they weren't made the way that I like. Um, uh, no offense to her. I love the woman. She did so great of a job taking care of me. But after a week of being there with her and my stepdad, I was like, I was 26 or 25. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, you got to get home. This is killing me. Mm-hmm. So then I went home. I was there for a week and I was losing my mind in my house. My roommate at the time worked nights. So he was never around during the day. Uh, and after a week of being at home, I went back to work for the first time. The, the first day I walked halfway to the bus stop and had to turn around and walk back because I was too exhausted. Like I said, my legs atrophied to nothing and uh, I was just wrecked. The second day I got all the way to the bus stop but decided not to get on the bus because I was afraid I would, would be too exhausted. So I walked back home. The third day I actually rode the bus to work but didn't get off and rode back home. The fourth day I actually made it into the office for about an hour and was just so unfathomably exhausted that I was like, if I don't leave right now, I'm not going to make it home because I'm too mm-hmm. tired. And then after that, stayed at work for two hours and three hours and then worked up to like six hour days and eight hour days, but only went three days a week um, for a couple weeks. And that was really the only thing that uh, – helped to sufficiently distract me because I had a job where uh, I had some student employees working for me and uh, I could kind of just run things and work on the computer and they would uh, help me out in any way that I needed. Um, So that helped. But even when I worked up to an eight-hour day, then you're still at home for 16 hours, can't sleep barely on narcotics and just kind of trying to kill time as you heal. Mm-hmm. Like I knew that there was an end date on this, even though my brain liked to tell me otherwise. I knew there was an end date on this, but it, it just couldn't get there fast enough. I was trying to make the days go by faster, but there just wasn't much that I could do. And even the things that I wanted to do and physically was capable of doing, it would exhaust me so quickly that I had to only do them in short increments. So it very much was this, this crazy kind of prison situation in my own house because I'm used to staying very, very busy Mm -hmm. and, um, I wasn't able to. Yeah. Um, you talked a bit earlier about your relationship with your grandmother and how she was really there for you in the first person that you reached out to and was supportive of you throughout that process before that process were there any friends that were supportive or faithful kind of thing it it, it wasn't that i didn't have people that were supportive my family Mm -hmm. was very supportive of me but they they wanted me to they wanted me to be higher achieving than i cared to be Mm -hmm. at the time when i was younger um and yeah i had i had friends that were in the program with me uh, in the architecture program with me, in school with me. Uh, but uh, we were all very much focused on other things outside of school early on in college. Freshman and sophomore year at CU Boulder was, one, you're trying to learn how to be an adult because it's the first time you're ever living on your own. Right. And two, there's a lot of partying to be done in college. Sure. And uh, that was a hard thing for me to find a balance with. That and I was playing uh, World of Warcraft for about 60 hours a week. Um, I got pulled. That It came out in 2004, uh, right when I started college. Maybe mm-hmm. two months after I started college, World of Warcraft came out, and it pulled me in really hard. Uh, I ended up dating a girl in college for four and a half years that played as well. And because I had a was playing World of Warcraft, 
Warcraft, why the hell would I not 60 hours a week? And that was kind of how my mindset was, um, which is absurd to think about now. But it was like, um, yeah, uh, I had things that were much more important to me than school was. And my grandma was really the one that laid it out laid out the reality of the situation mm-hmm. and really put, she gave it the stakes. She was like, look, if you keep failing classes, you're going to be done with college and you're going to have to go find some job doing something that you probably don't want to do or you can suck it up, get this degree in this thing that you're somewhat unsure of and then go do whatever you want afterwards. Like it's more important to have that piece of paper than it is to – find the perfect thing for you to do because mm-hmm. uh, I, I worked for the university for a decade and it is one of the most insane prospects for kids in our society is at 18 years old to decide what you want to do for the rest right. of your life. That's outrageous. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. And to expect that is just kind of insane. And I understand why things are set up that way because we need people to specialize as early as possible. But I did. I was not informed of what an architect. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. I was about to ask. Your architecture is very specialized. Did you, at any point during the process, say, "Hey, this is not what I signed up for"? Yeah. So, after freshman year of college, my dad had a friend who was an architect, mm-hmm. and he set me up to shadow this guy for two days. So I went and I spent two whole days with him, and all we did was drive around to um, city municipal buildings and look up codes and mm. uh, variances and all of these things. And all we did was sit in this man's car and then go research shit mm-hmm. in government buildings. And I was like, oh my God, is this what being an architect is like? And we went back to his firm and hardly anyone was drawing anything or designing anything. It was just we have to – take this client specifications and we have to figure out how to make it work in a way that is, uh, for the most part as inexpensive as possible. Right. And the other part is it has to, uh, adhere to all the city codes and the zoning ordinances and all of those things. And I was like, fuck this, this is not, this is not at all what I signed up for. Um, and started taking graphic design classes and industrial design classes and website design classes. And just because I was still very much interested in design, I just didn't want to go the architecture route. And right. honestly, um, man, this interview is all over the place. No, you're good. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> um, but honestly, that's all of those skills. The industrial design, the graphic design, the web mm-hmm. design, all of those things have directly led me to where I am today with my Absolutely. Ceramic. I was just I about to ask, it seems like there was a bit of a period during your accident where you almost got away from design. You were very design-based and probably before to apply to architecture school, during architecture school, and I, from your work, see a very design-based, uh, irritative uh, process and do... Did you – am I right to say that it, the design process kind of took a break while you had that injury or do you think It kind that... of took a break before the injury. Like when yeah. I was working for the school, I was much more focused on helping students with their projects and just uh, learning the job 
Mm-hmm. So yes, you're ex- you're entirely right. Is that that design kind of passion fell off? Like I still had a sketchbook and I still drew stuff in it all the time, but it didn't have any sort of direction. Once I started taking pottery classes, almost instantaneously after the second or third class, once I started to kind of get a handle on this is how clay works, this is how the process works. Um, now let's kind of flex some ideas and see what I can right. do with this. That was about the time when I was sitting at work every day at CU Boulder and I was like, how can I take everything that I've learned here, the design, the iteration, the 3D printing, 3D modeling, all of that stuff, how can I take that and integrate it with pottery? Mm -hmm. And the solution was to um, 3D model forms in the computer using that design education, using that iterative process. And... 3D print them out of plastic, then make a plaster mold from there, and then cast that plaster mold in porcelain. And that's exactly what I do today. My All of my colorful geometric pieces that you find on my uh, Etsy and my Instagram are a direct result of that process of taking this computer-aided design and fabrication and bringing it into the world of clay and just developing the processes to do so. And absolutely, I got away from the design world, design um, thinking for a while. And when I started doing pottery and after my accident, uh, it all just kind of came crashing back together and developed into what I'm doing today. It seems like that's a good thing. It seems like that makes you happy. Was there any times where living without that was depressive at all? It was. I was, um, after I got out of college, I, um, broke up with my girlfriend four and a half years of dating and getting out of college. We were in very different places in our lives. As you can imagine over college is like a crazy period of growth. And Mm -hmm. from the time that I met her freshman year to the time that I graduated, I was a completely different person. And so I was, um, single, which changed my mindset a lot. I was working this nine to five job that was, fairly easy and it paid the bills and not a super lot was expected of me in terms of like challenging me. Um, so I was, I was before my accident, I was in a very stagnant place, um, especially design wise. And even though I had for all intents and purposes, I had a great career. People fight so hard to go work for the university. It's mm-hmm. a great job. They take great care of you. They paid me the entire time that I was in the hospital. It was amazing. I couldn't have asked for a better situation. The people that I work with, they actually like all chipped in, all these student employees, all these other employees, they chipped in and they bought me a new bike because mine got bent in half by this oh, van that nice. hit me. So I was in an insanely good situation and I knew it. And even though I wasn't fulfilled at all at my job, I recognized that it was a great job. But there was something missing. And it was uh, it was hard to deal with. And I, I filled my time with video games and I filled my time with um, dating as many women as I could and spending a lot of time in the gym. But it was not, it was not fulfilling. Um, and it, there was definitely that kind of existential crisis like what am I doing with my life am I really going to sit at this desk for the next fucking 30 years mm-hmm. can I really can I really do that and it took this accident and it took 
taking it took just completely breaking me down and taking me to the lowest points of my entire life that I realized, wow, I am missing something in my life and I need to find out what that is. And I didn't go into I didn't go into taking pottery classes thinking that specifically. I just wanted to get out of the house and to be perfectly blunt, uh, I thought going to pottery classes would be a decent place to meet women. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't work out. <laughs> there was, I remember my first class, I walked in and it was me and it was a bunch of 60-something-year-old women. And I was like, <laughs> I have made a huge fucking mistake. <laughs> this is not what I was expecting. Um but yeah, I, it was just very fortuitous that uh, taking pieces of clay, taking hunks of clay that are amorphous and turning them into whatever I could come up with in my mind was the most um, satisfying and the most fulfilling thing that I've found in my life up till now. At that point when you were looking for classes and things to do were you looking for a purpose to fall back into or not at all i was not in that mindset at all i was purely focused on i need to stop taking oxycodone and i need to get off mm -hmm. of my goddamn couch mm -hmm. i need to get out of the house i can't go lift weights i can't ride a bike yet i can't go running i can't do any of these things that i used to do i need to find a way to just get me out of my house or I'm going to completely lose my mind. And the pottery studio was close. It wasn't super expensive and it was a regular thing where right. three days a week I was out of the house and I could look forward to that. I'd be sitting at work all day or I'd be sitting on the couch and I'd be like tomorrow from 6.30 to 9.30 I get to go to this ceramics class and I know what I'm going to do and I would think about all the things that I wanted to make and it would just it would give me that distraction to um, to get over the circumstances that I was in and to get me to stop feeling sorry for myself. It gave me a direction to point myself in. So, yeah, it crazy happenstance that I ended up doing this. I very easily could have done glass blowing or woodworking, but um, it's a lot easier to get into pottery than it is to get into either of those. Mm -hmm. There's not really many woodworking classes for groups of people running around and there's not really that many glass blowing classes. I would have to like meet a glass blower and pay them for private lessons and use their studio. But with ceramics, there are public studios all over the place that teach mm -hmm. classes. So none of this was really planned. It just kind of developed uh, organically. Um, and I'm very, I'm very fortunate that that happened. We're both I'm very, very glad it worked out for yeah. you too. Yeah. yeah. And then, like I said, taking it to that next level where, uh, I started putting pictures of my work on Instagram. I started recognizing that what I was doing, especially with the 3d printing and the mold making was fairly unique and there weren't mm -hmm. a lot of other people doing it. Uh, I enjoyed sharing that process. I enjoyed, uh, becoming part of that community. So the ceramics community on Instagram is great. Uh, I have done collaborations with other very talented artists that have been doing this for longer than me that have way bigger followings than me. Uh, I went to this convention last year called Nsika and I met all the other Instagrammers that I had been speaking with 
Very in cool. DMs for months. And it was such an incredibly fun thing to fall into of just this community of people that are doing similar things and everyone is very supportive and it's it's a lot of fun. So that that is the other half of this equation that kind of gave me uh that makes me fulfilled and will keep me doing this for the rest of my life is that that community that I have available to me. Yeah. So what uh what do you what would you say are like some long-term uh lessons or realities that you've learned from your whole experience with the accident so uh like i said i have through that accident i've been in the absolute lowest points i could ever imagine both physically and mentally and emotionally and it took me through um, every low point I could possibly imagine and not to say that it couldn't get any lower because it absolutely could have and I will be the first to admit that my situation is far more fortunate than a lot of the people out there one I have very few I have I have no serious medical conditions ongoing mm-hmm. that I have to deal with for the rest of my life and two I had a tremendously good support system through my friends and my family it was it was really as good as I could possibly imagine it. But it was still, even though I had the best of a bad situation, it was still pretty rough and I learned a lot. Um, I, more than anything, I learned that life is short or I now believe that life is very short and you have to take advantage of as much as you can. Before I was in this accident and went through this whole ordeal, I would squander days and weeks and just wasn't making any progress, no personal growth. And I really believe that it, it, it wasn't so much the fact that I didn't have, I didn't have that kind of direction in life. I really believe that if I had before been working towards short, medium and long-term goals, it would have made me feel more fulfilled. And I don't, it's this weird kind of chicken and the egg thing of like I, I didn't feel fulfilled until I found my thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But I couldn't find what I wanted to do for the rest of my life until I was going through those steps of achieving my goals and moving forward. Do you know what I'm – does that make any sense? Like sure. I don't mm-hmm. feel – as much as it sounds like this all just kind of fell into my lap – I still had to get my ass off the couch, stop right. feeling sorry for myself, and go out and try something. Um, there were other things that I tried. I tried CrossFit. It was uh, way too soon after I broke my neck, and it was a very bad. I was six months out of the halo, and I started doing CrossFit, and I hurt myself way worse than I should have. It was a bad situation. Don't. Don't jump right into something like that after you've completely annihilated your body. It's not a good idea. So, yeah, so that's that's the point that I think was real the the big lesson there is you can't just wait for your life's purpose to come and find you and slap you in the face. Like you have to you have to try different things and you have to do stuff to actually get there. And mm. I spent most of my life, most of my 20s 
just kind of, oh, well, maybe I'll figure out what I want to do with my life eventually. But until then, I have a good job and blah, 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 blah. Um, but having this situation, having this accident, it lit a fire in me, so to speak, as corny as that sounds. Um, I am completely different person than I was before. I wake up at six o'clock every morning and I'm in my basement working on my work by six thirty, And that's outrageous to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to, like I, I go to bed every night with the ideas of what I'm going to do the next day. And when I wake up the next morning, I cannot wait to get out of bed and get started to do the things that I'm going to do. And I really wish there was a way to teach people that without destroying them. Which I talk about this with my brother all the time. He has a three-year-old son named Calvin. And it's like, how do you instill these ideas into a child without having them have to go through something horrible? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Absolutely. Like I, Absolutely. My, my brother and I are very close in age. I think we're 15 months apart. And we we talk about this a lot because we were not the most motivated children. He was more so than me. He was the valedictorian and he he got great grades. Mm-hmm. I was the apathetic drunk high school kid that was just chasing women constantly and playing video games. Um, but how how do you get kids to actually care about things without having the or how do you get people to actually care about s- taking charge in their life without having them go through some horrible ordeal? It's a big, it's a million dollar question in my mind. <laughs> if you had to give your brother some advice for raising a, a young oh, boy, boy in the modern age, what would it be? Not necessarily to full, form a full person, but just the difference yeah. between your upraising and what you think yeah. his will be. And we talk about this a lot. And I think that, um, God, I don't, I don't know how I would feel if uh, my dad heard this or saw this, but... Um, I feel like we were kind of absent of father figure um, when we were growing up in a lot of ways. He was he was around, but he was constantly off doing his own stuff. And um, I, I don't feel like it was much of a, a much of a role model for me. Um, what would I tell Greg? Just be be the man that you want him to be. Because kids, and and he's aware of this, and we talk about this all the time, but kids learn through seeing, not by hearing. Mm -hmm. I remember my dad spent my entire life telling me what to do and then doing the opposite. And I was, my whole life, I was like, well, this is bullshit. Why the hell would I do that? He's not doing it. Um, So that would, yeah, let's, let's go with that. Let's go, that would be the biggest thing is to actually live live the way, how do I want to word this? (laughs) You have to live the way that you want your kids to grow up to be because they're watching that shit. Mm. Um, yeah. I think that's good. I mean, we've been talking for almost an hour now, so we don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, I think, uh, we just have like one more quick question and then we'll let you go. Um, Maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, like a personal reflection on um, like how you relate to 
mental health in the current age um you know what are your thoughts on kind of the movement that's that's going on so wow this yeah this interview has been really all over the place um (laughs) i i really appreciate what you guys are doing this is something that this is another thing that my brother and i talk about a lot it's and it's something that he he also finds very um important for his son he he is constantly asking his son how does that make you feel Mm -hmm. and getting getting responses from his from my nephew of actually like stop take a second to think about what you're feeling and how your emotions are and then explain that to me in words and i think that that's something that growing up uh, it was not, it was not something that was stressed with us. My grandfather, especially, and then my father to a lesser extent, they were these men that you, you don't know what they're thinking. You don't know how they're feeling. They don't show hardly any emotion. Um, you don't know what's going through their head. And it was kind of one being a dad, you're kind of expected to, um, kind of be that rock that is kind of, holding that family together and you're everyone you're you have to help everyone else with their um issues uh mental or otherwise and um uh also just being uh a man we grew up you guys are about the same age as me and we grew up in this age of uh, the john mcclain action heroes and arnold from predator and all of these movies that i remember growing up and it was this hyper hyper macho you would never talk about your feelings kind of a thing. And that's not, that's not how the world actually works and we're in. So I, especially relating to related to my nephew, I think that what you guys are doing is tremendously important because a lot of guys in our generation and tons of guys in the generation before us never in their entire life felt comfortable to actually talk about or even think about what, is going through their head, what problems they're dealing with. Um, it's not something that I've almost ever sat down with other men and talked about things that are going on in my mind and things that are going on, uh, that are hard and hard to deal with. Um, what am I trying to say? Uh, yeah, I, I could not think that what you guys are doing is important enough. I really applaud you guys for doing it. And I hope that, uh, it can continue to grow because all of these things that we see in the world today of this toxic masculinity and all of the, so much stuff that I've seen in the news just recently, um, of people, men, of men just acting macho because one, they don't know how else to act. And two, because, uh, it stops them from being vulnerable at all. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, uh, I don't know. The first, well, thank- the first step is opening up and talking about it. Yeah, I was about to say, thank you so much for sharing your story and taking that first step with us. Absolutely. More than happy to do so. Thanks for listening, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And I hope you guys have a good one, and um, I hope this just continues to grow for you. Thank you so Thank much, you. as well as your project as well. If yeah. you want to give a, a little plug here at the end as well. 
your stuff. So, yeah, if you want to see what I have turned my trauma into, you can go to hammerlyceramics.com or look me up on Instagram at hammerlyceramics and um, see what I'm up to. Always trying to push it as hard as I can and uh, just keep myself busy. Thank you so much for talking and taking the time to talk to us, Kurt. Yeah, of course. You. Of course. You guys have a good day. You too, uh, bud. You too. Later.